From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Pam Sherritt, turfgrass specialist at The Ohio State University for the last 24 years, teaching a variety of courses in sports turf and plant sciences. We all know Pam for her expertise and advocacy of the sports turf industry, and she's currently on the board of directors at The Ohio Sports Field Managers Association. Pam received the Distinguished Teaching Award from The Ohio State University's College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences for 2023, recognizing her many years of supporting the the educational programs on the Ohio State campus. Pam has a long history of advocating for safe athletic fields, and we all know that nutrient management is critical in sand-based high-traffic systems. Your partners at the Plant Food Company have the nutrient products to meet all your needs when balancing plant health, field safety, and playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Pam Sherritt. Thank you very much. I am so pleased we have gotten the time to be together here. Everybody's going to find out pretty quickly how wonderful it is to hear the sound of your voice. That comes from Skays Brick, south of Southport or north of Southport? Somewhere on the road to Southport. Talk to us a little bit about where you're from in England. So thank you for pronouncing it Skays Brick, because that's how it should be pronounced, even though it's spelled Scarry's Brick. It is a historic village just south of Southport, between Southport and Ormskirk, about 15 miles outside of Liverpool in the northwest of England. Mm -hmm. It's a farming village, so arable farms, potatoes, cabbages, Mm -hmm. Brussels sprouts, all those types of things. Yeah, I was brought up in Skaysbrick. I left school at 16 and went to college and it completely opened my eyes. But yes, I'm a farm girl at heart. That's right. And almost everybody that we get on the show has some connection back to the natural world, farming or nursery production, or many people like Melody Frazier, Dr. Frazier, comes from a family of golf course superintendents. So many of us have that pedigree. Yours was more agriculturally based, although I did read where you were involved in some nursery work. But did that then lead to your pursuit of the education at Myers Co.? And I used to come to that part of the world pretty frequently for the National Turf Foundation. It was Martin, right? Martin Jones, yeah. Yes, Martin Jones. I used to come out there every once in a while. I know he was associated with Myers Co. Were you around there at that time? Yes, I did have an agricultural background. All my Saturday jobs and summer jobs were packing beetroot, packing potatoes, etc. My uncle Stan had a plant nursery and I worked for him. And then when I was 16, I left school and I did an apprentice ship at a nursery and I did a one day a week at Myersco and then I did further courses at Myersco and then when I graduated from them I got a job as an instructor at Myersco in landscape horticulture and while I was doing that I stumbled across turf like I think we all do and thought oh my god this is what I want to do for the rest of my life I absolutely love this plant i don't know why i thought that but i just i just fell in love with it immediately and then martin jones was the head of turf and yeah i worked with martin for many years he was an outstanding individual he started that conference right. he brought in speakers from all over the world yeah i was worked with martin for many years outstanding man so has teaching always been in your blood 
I've always been an extrovert and I love people. So I think, yes, I've always wanted to work in a job where I had a connection with people and I could make a difference with people and enjoy people and, and hopefully help people. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably is teaching, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. Did you get formal training along the way in how to be an effective teacher or education classes or things like that? Actually, no. I did some professional development in that after I got the job as an instructor at Myersco. And I got some professional development. But to be honest with you, I had really good mentors. Mm. So Martin Jones, I look back on the supervisors and bosses I've had over the years and have been really fortunate to have people that took the time to mentor me and guide me, help me, support me. I've been super lucky in that respect. So, you know, you bumped into turf. Did you all of a sudden abandon what you were doing? And was it not until you came to Ohio or were you starting to bump into it and really enjoy it in Myersco with Martin? So I started enjoying it at Myersco with Martin. And then we had actually an American called John Damasio came over as a guest lecturer. He was superintendent at Firestone Country Club in Akron. Mm -hmm. And he did his master's degree with Carl Danniberger. And he came over for a short period as a guest lecturer to teach at Myersco. And he and I would do these road trips and we'd go to golf courses and stadiums. We'd take the students out. And that's where I think my love developed because I would go to all these places and meet the superintendents and meet the field managers and just found it all fascinating. And then what really solidified it for me, I took a summer off from Myersco. I think it was 95. And I worked at Turnberry Golf Club in Ayrshire in Scotland for the summer, like a sabbatical, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that just solidified it. Being up on the golf course at Turnberry at six o'clock in the morning and looking out, you know, across the Irish Sea Mm. and being part of that was just, this is it. And then started to do more of the sports turf with students and really enjoyed, especially the soccer side. So I would place students on internships and I'd do trips out to places like Manchester United and Liverpool. And Mm -hmm. that's when I swung over more to the sports turf side. When you started to go to those places early on, And you started to meet the people in charge of these places. I mean, obviously, to this day, Pam, people you work very closely with at the head of the Columbus crew operation, right? All these people you continue to work with. What are some of the things that being a people person, you were looking at these folks and saying, wow, I could really help these folks. This is really cool work. Or what was it about the work? Obviously, we all like being outside. But when you're talking about some of that work, it's very operational, right? It is plant-based, of course, but there's a lot of moving parts. What was it about meeting those guys? And even today, what I know you work closely with these guys that are heads of guys and gals that are heads of enormous uh, operations. What are some of the characteristics you notice? I guess the main help that I give is at the high school and parks and rec level. I very rarely get called out to a professional facility where they need my agronomic technical help. Those types of people tend to just need my support in some way. Mm. So they're trying to get a piece of equipment or put across an idea idea and they'll bring me in to support that Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yes it does Uh but at the level where it's not professional people bring in where they do want the agronomics and the technicals and the resources they need help with i've been very fortunate over the years again and i think that's a testimony to the industry that everybody's so open and i don't know whether that's across the board in turf but in sports turf people don't guard their information or feel threatened by me coming in or anything like that everyone's Mm -hmm. very open and looking 
to make their surface the best it can be. And so everybody's different depending on what field they're managing, but ultimately they're all the same. And I've never, ever been out to a visit where I felt like they thought I was threatening or they haven't wanted me there or they haven't been close to ideas. I think that's mm-hmm. probably indicative of turf in general, right? Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. So now you're at Myers Co. I heard you mention Dr. Danny Berger's name, and I was pleased to see pictures of him that you put out at OTF and him to get that nice honor with Dr. Vargas, his mentor. Somewhere along the line, it seems that your path connected with his path. Let's talk a little bit about how you wound up in Ohio. So Martin Jones at Myersco was head of turf. He always called himself a frustrated cowboy. (laughs) He loved America. I mean, he just loved it. And he was one of those people that would read turf textbooks before he went to bed at night. He loved science. He loved turf grass management. He loved the industry. And so he created this conference and he would invite speakers from all over the world to come speak at it. And he had this very strong friendship with Ohio State, with Dr. Street, Danny Berger, Rimble Spark, Ed McCoy. And of course, you went over there. He recognized the turf grass scientists in America that were really on the cutting edge. And he would bring those over to England and he would put this conference on. So through that, I got to meet the OSU people. And that was very nice, but I wouldn't have been able to come if it hadn't been for O'Keefe. Mike O'Keefe runs the International Internship Program here at Ohio State, and he basically sends people outside of America to gain experience in turf grass management, and he brings people in. And so Mike came to me and said, hey, listen, you want to come over and you should work at the turf grass research facility for the summer, and you're going to gain all this information and expertise that you can bring back to the program at Myersco, and I'll help you set that up. So Mike was the facilitator in that. And I came over in the summer of 98 to work for Jill Taylor and Carl Danny Berger at the Turfgrass Research Facility just for the summer. And that was through the OSU faculty, but Mike O'Keefe was the person that helped me make that happen. And he's done that for so many of us. I don't know oh, gosh. how many you know, but there are, there are superintendents, even just Ohio State, you know, Dr. Ed Nangle, myself. Wait, wait, before we go any further... When you sit down and talk to Ed, do you need an interpreter to understand his language? I often need an no, interpreter. No, see, I'm Liverpool's only just across the water from Ireland, <laughs> so I I don't have to tune in too much to Ed. Now I've got I don't know if you know where uh, Mossy Eamon McCarthy. I don't. He was another Martin Jones protege, and he's out there around the world. And, uh, you know, he's done big things, and I have to tune in to him. I have to really listen. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, back to Mike O'Keefe, and this is a good place for us to. Uh, sort of transition to you coming here and taking a minute to really pay tribute to Mike's work in the international program. One of the things that really has been fascinating has been, even at Cornell, I'll sit down with a kid every once in a while, really interested in turf, even occasionally interested in sports, and they say, well, where can I go? And I literally feel like I can say to them, hey, you can go anywhere in the world because I know a guy. And I feel like every turf professor in the country, if they want their students or make it easy to go abroad, Mike's really made that very effective from my end. I know he's been just as impactful in bringing kids over. And I'm assuming you must have been there in the early years of him doing that. Yes. We talk sometimes at Ohio State about, wouldn't it be great to get a list of all the people that he's helped over the years? Because there has to be thousands of us. And whether it's the World Cup or the Olympics or a PGA tournament, or whatever it is, chances are somebody on that crew has been through Mike O'Keefe's program. 
It's huge. I would, at some point, I would love to sit down with somebody and put that list together and, and honor him because at some point we're going to have to honor the guy. I well, uh, but of course, Pam, I want to know if you're the mastermind behind the greatest tribute ever, the John Street bobblehead. And can I get one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can find one for you and get it sent over to you. And so just to wrap this up, I'm with you. I had a lot. Laura Arias on the program earlier, right, in preparation for the Ryder Cup, and she came through the Ohio State program, worked at three top-notch championship facilities in her time here, and everybody just calls it the Ohio State program. And, you know, I know for a period of time, Carl was involved in getting students from the Czech Republic and other parts of Eastern Europe. I know there was this big transfer happening there. You guys have been bringing people from around the world for a really long time and spread them out and about. You're certainly a testament to how effective it can be. But there's also sometimes, you know, Mike's also, I think, got to help people determine the fit. And that seems where it's the trickiest, right? It's one thing to help facilitate something. Can you talk for a minute about how Ohio State was the right fit for you and maybe not going into working in golf or anything like that? First of all, I'm going to just say that we do have a nickname for Mike, and he's we call him the Kevin Bacon of turf. <laughs> Six degrees. Yeah, Mike's very good at that, actually. He has very strict guidelines. Each individual person, he meets them, he gets to know them personally, and he has very strict guidelines. If it's a student, obviously, there's the GPA and the letters of recommendation. If I have a student say, okay, I want to send this student over to the English Premiership League, Mike, he'll say, okay, well, what's this student done before? Have they worked in soccer? Can they get letters of recommendation? Like he's very detailed when it comes to placing people in the right place. He obviously saw that in me. He saw that I was teaching at Myersco. He saw that I could benefit from coming over to the States and learning new techniques, you know, different techniques. It would boost my confidence as a teacher. He saw that in me, got to know me personally, and so made that happen. So Mike's very unique in that he doesn't do this for power or, you know, we always laugh at it. Oh, there's free food. Mike's going to be there and he's everywhere you know everybody knows Mike (laughs) but he doesn't do it for that he genuinely cares about the industry and about helping young people get a leg up he genuinely cares about giving people an opportunity and he'll give you that opportunity and then he wants you to take it and run with it and I think he just saw that in me and helped me and then when I came back in 99 he helped me come back full-time too Mm. and Martin my boss at the time I dreaded telling him because I didn't want to leave him. And he, again, was like, my job is to make you as successful as you can be and, and I'll support you and you've got to do this. So, yeah, like I said, I've been very fortunate. Yeah. Well, my job now is to thank you, Pam Sherritt. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Managing soil physical properties are critical in high-performance sports fields and golf courses. These systems need to function at a high level, and for that, the pros at DryJack Services have the expertise and equipment to meet your soil amending, top dressing, and aerating needs in one pass. Contact your local DryJack rep for more information or visit dryjack.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Pam Sherritt, who's been with the Ohio State program since 1999. Pam, do I have that right? Yep. So in that role as a turf grass specialist, I know you because of probably more of your external work, but you also do some internal work. 
Let's talk about the classes that you teach on campus at, I will say it publicly, the Ohio State University, <laughs> just to be clear. So everybody knows I know what I'm talking about here. Uh, what are you teaching at the Ohio State University? So I teach a plant science class called the World of Plants, and I have anywhere from two to 300 in that each semester. Mm. I teach a sports turf management class. Mm. I started it in person, and I used to have about anywhere from 15 to 30 each semester take that. It's now online, and actually the majority of the students that take that class now are in the sports industry. Mm. I guess it's listed as an elective or something in one of their majors. And then I teach a diagnostic lab, which is online, which has been very challenging. That's been a new class that I've developed. And the premise is develop an online lab that's hands-on but asynchronous. Do you have to send out lab kits? So I'm only about 18 months into this class and so far I haven't, but I'm going to have to start investigating how to do that because I do have them do the soil settlement test and plot a textual triangle. Mm -hmm. They're extracting DNA from a strawberry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and right now, right now I have the students go out and they get those materials. But yeah, I'm going to have to figure that out. And one of the reasons I've been avoiding it is because I know it's going to mean I've got to work with purchasing uh... software. <laughs> Okay, I know. Everybody's, anybody that works in a large operation tries to avoid that. So let's uh, talk to me a little bit about your internal sports class, because I know you also have a sports turf short course that I know I've sent some of my colleagues to, people who have worked with me and, and other people there. Talk a little bit about teaching young people on campus. Now you're teaching everywhere around the world. Is it different teaching the students on campus versus people practicing in the profession? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I think everybody wants to be successful. So mm -hmm. the sports tip management class that I offer online to the students is exactly the same as we offer as a certificate program. So the quality of the course is the same. The content is the same. Everybody wants to succeed the same. The outside professionals can take it in their own time outside of work. The students, mm -hmm. again, I try and make it asynchronous and they can do it in their own time. I do a poll each year and they tell me overwhelmingly that they don't want me to do weekly deadlines. They want to be able to access it at their own time because many of the students these days are holding down one, two, three jobs mm -hmm. also to pay for their college so I think there's more similarities than differences, actually, with both groups. So and I want to lead to the logical next step, which is your involvement with the Sports Field Managers Association used to be STMA. And I know you're on the board of directors still. So I'm sort of leading towards that because that's where I really felt I love your question and answer thing. And I used to love when I used to get the magazine. But right. Who gets a magazine anymore? I used to love your question and answer things. And I, I always used to think, gosh, this woman knows exactly how to explain this really complicated topic in six paragraphs. So I could tell that you were a good instructor because those questions weren't always easy. But I'm really curious about the sort of evolution of the sports field profession, sports turf, sports field profession that you've seen over the 20 some odd years. You've been so intimately involved from young people to now teaching around the world, being on the board. I, I want to get a sense of how sports field management and managers and their education has evolved in the 20 years you've been doing it. 
So I should probably start off by saying I'm not on the national board anymore. I am on the Ohio Sports Turf Managers Board, and I do still write that Q&A. It's every two months. Grady Miller does the off month. So he Mm -hmm. does the warm season questions. I do the cool season. Thank you for the compliment. I will tell you that that column gives me more stress than anything. (laughs) I stress about that. You're probably the same. When you have to write something and you know you're only 800 words and you want to be interesting and you don't want to preach to the choir, it gives me so much stress. Well, you know what Mark Twain used to say, right? He said, I had written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because it's so much harder. We challenge our students all the time to write concise articles because, you know, they want to start writing two nights before and then I get 1,500 words of verbal diarrhea. (laughs) So writing is really hard, and I'm I'm glad to hear that because I'm thinking, man, yeah. it's really hard. To, it's really hard to write that way because I yeah. write, you know, like you, I write for a living. So I'm glad to hear that, and I also enjoy Grady and honestly, your predecessor Dave Minner, who I just missed terribly and loved when he was active in in the profession. Of course, that association under Kim Hecht's leadership, and now I think there's new people involved. But can you just, let's go back to my original question. How has educating and the things you're talking to these sports field managers changed in the 20 years you've been at it? Gosh, that's a huge question. There's a lot of similarities in that they're still looking for the same things. They're still looking for job satisfaction. They're still looking for to be valued in the workplace. Obviously, still looking to get a good salary and all the things that they've always wanted. Mm-hmm. Technology, obviously, has just exploded in the sports turf industry, I would say, in the last 20 years. I used to say that technology was the ad guys are like the first and then the golf guys kind of latch on and then the sports turf guys kind of <laughs> come along afterwards. But I think I think in the last 20 years, the sports turf sector has exploded with technology. And I think it started with, you know, the phrase mowing and all of that and being able to renovate very quickly. And then the lights came in. And then, of course, we got all the growth products and things like the growth retard, things like that. So the technology in sports turf has just exploded. And then on top of that, I think it's become very stressful in that the stadiums now, you know, 25 years ago when I came to Ohio State, there was 12 home games a year on the facility. Yeah, Maybe, you know, commencement maybe one or two concerts maybe a couple of summer camps well now you're talking 300 plus events in there a year at least these stadiums have to be used 24 7 and 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 that's not just professional stadiums that's you know high school fields and multi-use whether it's band concerts corporate events and dinners charity events they're used and actually at Sun Ross Line from Denver spoke at OTF. She manages an athletic facility there in Denver. And it's a really cool setup. She manages these fields, these athletic fields that service six high schools. So instead of each high school having a facility, which I think they do still have some kind of athletics, but the big events are held at one centralized facility. And I see that as being maybe something we'll see more of in the future, uh, having these central facilities where high schools will go to. I guess you could say it's trying to get more for less, but I don't think it is. I think it's centralizing the expertise as well is something that we're going to have to see because we don't have the manpower. I think we're going to start to see some real creative stuff as far as manpower, technology, to try and overcome some of those big challenges we've got right now in sports turf, which is overuse and Mm -hmm. Lack of manpower. 
Which raises the wonderful question that you set up so beautifully here about technology changing the things you have to teach and nothing more evidenced by the surface itself being synthetic more frequently than not in those situations that you're speaking about. How do you approach that in a class where these people have to be able to go out and manage both of those things, especially in light of the public debate that goes on between the natural and the synthetic surfaces? And as an educator, right, as somebody, I think, thickly involved in the conversation whenever it comes up, how do you go about approaching the natural versus synthetic thing? And I would imagine it would start by what you've already said is that you can use it all the time. Yeah, what I do, and I'll say this to all my students in every class that I teach at the very beginning, is I'm going to give you the science that we have today. So I'm going to tell you what we have today and what the known facts are today, and whether that's about synthetic versus natural, whether that's about pesticides, whether that's about GMOs, whatever it is, I'm going to tell you what we know today through the science. And it's not about opinion. It's not about emotion. I'm just going to tell you what's out there. And I'll get that question sometimes, which is better and injuries, you know, which one causes more injuries? Well, I'm not a medical person. I don't think there's been anything published right now, has there, as far as like, I know the NFL Players Association have made some statements, but I don't think the epidemiological data is out there yet for us to, as educators, whatever information we give the students has to be based on science and what we know at the moment. And then we also have to encourage critical thinking. So I might give them an assignment where I go off and I ask them to read something. I did an assignment last year about the NFL Players Association and the statements they were making. And I had them go out and do some research and look for good sources and try and encourage a little bit of critical thinking too. We don't want them listening to us all the time. We want them to develop their own ways of going out, finding good information. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the issue with this particular topic, it's interesting if you, you know, write a really good prompt into chat GPT about Mm. this, you get very interesting answers depending on the way you write your prompt because it has become a very polarizing issue, right? People like us that are professionals, certainly on the natural grass side, and all of us have developed significant expertise on the synthetic turf side to make us experts as well. You know it's a nuanced conversation. You can use grass endlessly if you're willing to do a fair amount of replacement, do some protection. Heck, Tony Leonard's proven it in Philadelphia, right? But you also know that you have to be nimble and work with a lot of different scheduling and things that are going on uh, at these operations that when you're talking about the high school level, right, Pam, they're just not going to do it. Yeah, I was actually a little bit disappointed. My my school district where my kids go, they just passed a levy and I think it's written in there that they're going to put in turf at all of the high schools. I think we have 16 high schools. So that's something I literally just found out a, a few weeks ago. So yeah, I think one of the big issues we have is expertise. Again, it comes down to we can mm-hmm. have all these grass fields, but if nobody knows how to take care of them and they're not going to employ somebody to take care of them. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there are issues, you know, it's not a panacea as we know. I was just OTF last week and uh, Kylie Dixon from Tennessee was one of the speakers and he you know it was an off-the-cuff comment that he made and he was talking about they're going to ban microplastics in Europe and and part of that package is going to be the crumb rubber infill and so one of the challenges now will be what kind of natural infills or other types of infill can we come up with with Uh, these synthetic fields mm. so 
synthetic turf's not a panacea and it's got its challenges. Um, you know, the heat is a challenge. The mm-hmm. infills obviously are going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. What to do with it when it comes to its end of its 10-year life cycle mm-hmm. is a challenge. Mm-hmm. The injury rate, I don't want to comment on. I don't feel educated enough in the medical field to comment on that. But it has its challenges as well. And so I think that's all going to start to come to the forefront a little bit. You know, there'll be research done and there'll be mm-hmm. more conversations had. And I, for one, am glad that you, Pam Sherritt, are involved with teaching the next generation because it requires, first and foremost, exactly what you said, critical thinking skills. And there are a lot of nuances to these conversations. And at the heart of it is you have to have somebody who knows what they're doing managing these operations. And I am very grateful to have you here today, Pam. Let me reintroduce you, Pam Sherritt, turf grass specialist at The Ohio State University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Product applications on high-performance sand-based systems require a high level of precision, especially high-traffic areas. Using GPS sprayers to target these areas is key to maximizing performance and minimizing product use. Ken Rost and the pros at Frost Spray Technology can guide you through the GPS process. Learn more about GPS technology from a sprayer company that specializes in it at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Pam Sherritt, turfgrass specialist at The Ohio State University. And I would love to talk to you about all the old guys that you've hung around all the years that you've been there at Ohio State. We talked about street and the bobblehead, but Rimmel's Spa is sort of come and gone. Now you're watching all these young people come in. It looks very exciting. But what I'm very interested in is your work in 4-H. Looks like you do an FFA. Your son is a proud Eagle Scout now, I believe. Tell me what has taken your interest in teaching to another level with 4-H, FFA, and your involvement with the Scouts. Yeah, I've always had an interest in, as I said at the very beginning, you know, I just, I like people and I like being helpful if I can. Kids are a particular kind of people though, right? I mean, I have kids and I like my kids and you have kids and you like your kids, but working with kids is a particular kind of skill, wouldn't you say? Yes. So I'm going to say very clearly right here, there's a reason I'm not a kindergarten teacher, right? (laughs) Definitely. Let me say I enjoy the older kids. I enjoy youth. I feel comfortable teaching at that level. So I started the STEM thing at Ohio State. I was bringing in students for a week STEM. I have been involved in a couple of the 4-H programs. I got involved in scouting, actually, I was just looking at this, 11 years ago when my oldest son joined. And of course, like any group, if you're in sports, whatever you're in, before you know what's happening, you're volunteering. (laughs) And they'll tell you it's an hour. We have a joke where they say it's only an hour a week. Well, that's complete nonsense. It's not. But you know what? I love it. I absolutely love it. I've actually become a teacher in Scouts. There's adult training courses that I teach in Scouting. There's one called Wood Badge. It's run every year and it trains the adult Scout leaders how to be better Scout leaders. And I teach that course. And then, yeah, my oldest just got his eagle and my youngest just got first class. So incredibly proud of both of them. My kids were in Cub Scouts, you know, where they're just like rolling around on the floor and eating dirt and doing all these other things. (laughs) We had some of these older scout boys come in and they and they would be in uniform and they would be incredibly eloquent. And I looked and I thought, I'm going to keep my kids in scouts because I want my kids to grow up to be like this. 
And so to see my son get Eagle Scout and to see him be like that, like he's just incredibly eloquent and capable. Like Mm -hmm. he's capable. If I was to get lost in the middle of the woods, if it's a zombie apocalypse, I would last a week, (laughs) probably not even a week. He would probably last indefinitely. And I think Scouts has done that for him. I don't think it's just Scouts. My advice to any single parent who might be listening to this is get your kids in something. Whether it's Scouts, Sports, the Arts, Band, whatever it is, get them in something for the friendships, the collegiality, and just their growth. The growth has just been incredible to see. Makes me very proud. I'm wondering about 4-H and FFA. Do you notice things different among those groups when you're teaching them? So I haven't had too many interactions with the FFA. Actually, we're trying to get that moving. There was, I think, I believe there was a meeting at the scientific meetings this fall about a curriculum that's going to be developed by turfgrass scientists. That's right. For the FFA programs. And that's so that's right. a relatively new thing, which I think would be great. I met with a local school district last year because they do great in agronomy and we were trying to get them to start a turfgrass science program. But again, it comes down to who's going to teach it because turfgrass is such a special. That's right. Uh, So I think it's great for us to come out with a curriculum, but we're going to have to also have some training for some of the teachers. Yeah, and I think your approach to using STEM in education, particularly when students are young, let's transition back to the sports turf stuff. Yeah. Do we do a good enough job sometimes in the turf grass industry of talking about the amount of STEM these folks are using every single day? It's not really a sports field or a golf course. You're just talking about a a managed urban landscape, right? It's with the typically grasses in and amongst a whole bunch of built stuff where it has to function in a particular way, whether it's a soccer stadium or a high school soccer field or a lawn out in front of the school or a filter, you know, where some drainage water goes on and cleans it out. I wonder sometimes if we could do a better job of promoting the STEM opportunities of managing plants simply in the urban landscape. You teach this wonderful intro class on plants. Do you include city kids like me that are got connected through these things? I'm wondering about STEM and promoting what we do, not just specifically turf, but managing plants in urban environments in particular. Well, first of all, I think the practitioners, the people that are actually doing the job, superintendents, the field managers, are so busy. I worry that we put the onus on them to promote the industry when they're already doing five million things. And so I I think that's what we look to our associations for, right? I mean, we want them to promote and to come up with resources that we can say this is a great career, this is a great industry. From a STEM perspective, there's so much. And when I go over to the England conference, I'm good friends with a guy who's with the Grounds Management Association the GMA. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I will never take a picture of a groundsman just holding a shovel or sat on a mower. Right. They're going to be looking like they're involved in some kind of STEM activity at the facility. Right. So it's perception. You know, they pick up a magazine, they turn on the television, whatever, or TikTok, whatever the mm-hmm. media they look at, we want to show people using technology. I think that's what we need to do. I agree 100%. And, and let me just say, particularly since you brought up the grounds managers, that's an interesting sector in the turf grass industry where I've seen a lot of turf people, sports, and even golf get involved. You know, they leave that particular profession or they're in a profession where there's an opportunity to move up to be a director of a facility, uh, mm-hmm. outdoor facility care or, or, or large operate, you know, landscape operations with Brightview. And what I notice is a lot of turf grass people 
tend to be very good at managing a wide range of landscapes, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. my friend Dan Scheid here at Cornell knows the landscape plants and the oaks down the main drive as much as he knows the height of cut on the grass in the ag quad. I'm always impressed with how many skills these grounds people have to have. Do you have interactions with the grounds people here in Ohio? And do you find the same thing, that they tend to be able to juggle a lot of different things at the same time. Absolutely. Kevin over at Denison, he went in there and he has great athletic fields, but he's created prairies and areas where, you know, he's looked at specific, making sure that they've got a food source for birds all year round. Incredibly thoughtful landscaping on the campus of Denison, not just for the athletic facilities. When I was in England this summer, I went to Warrington Golf Club and visited with those guys again, Michael Keefe's guys. Mm -hmm. But they had created some prairie plantings and they were looking at introducing beehives. They were going to start making golf course honey. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. So I know. Yeah, I think the people in our industry, they love it all, is all I can say. (laughs) Yeah. So listen, let's wrap it up. I want to talk to you about what looked like, by every measure, a very successful Ohio turf foundation conference this year and you know for those people listening from far flung don't know what we're talking about this is one of the very few large regional conferences left that have a uh, sort of meaningful trade show and and enormous uh, attendance generally and i was so pleased to see you have this panel of soccer professionals there Uh, I definitely was following that, at least uh, as you were posting certain things. I didn't get much of the information, but we could see who was there. That had to be really cool. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned that was interesting on that soccer panel for those of us getting excited about the World Cup coming in 26? Yes, we're incredibly lucky that we had those guys come in. And then, of course, what happened last week, Columbus Crew won the MLS Cup. So we had the Columbus Crew guys there. It was the week leading up to the Cup game, so we were super excited. I can't even begin to describe the excitement that people are feeling about the 2026 Men's World Cup that's coming here. Largest footprint in World Cup history, 16 stadiums. What's really interesting to me, I learned, is that every one of the venues has to have three things. They have to have hybrid turf as the playing surface. They have to have lights, the artificial lights, and they have to have vacuum-assisted drainage because FIFA doesn't want to have any cancelled games at all. So each of the host stadiums had to agree that, yes, they would have these three things in place. Uh, it's interesting, you know, some of the stadiums like the Dallas Stadium is not going to be quite big enough for a soccer field. So they're going to have to make some renovation changes to stadiums for size and capacity. That's mm. kind of interesting. It's all going to be on natural grass, of course. So everybody's super excited about that. And I, and I think it's just going to, soccer is just going to explode uh, yes. more than it has. I heard somebody really interesting. I, know, uh, I have a friend who's a groundsman who's been in Europe for years. And he said, I met him last week at OTF and he said, uh, America just wasn't ready. Was it 2004? What was the World Cup that you guys had here? It was uh, 1994 that the Silverdome was used, right? He said you guys just weren't, America wasn't ready. America was not ready for soccer. 2026, America's going to be ready and and it's going to completely explode. And I can already see that. I've seen that probably in the last 10 years, especially with the the Women's World Cup being huge, massive following, a peaked interest. Even in England, where I'm from, you know, we'd say it's the home of soccer and it's a religion to us, football. The women's has never been huge and now it is. So even in England, it's still continuing to explode in different ways. So the World Cup was part of it. The technology, obviously, the autonomous equipment, painters, mowers, the lights are obviously huge, you know, 
Do we stay with the regular bulbs? Do we go with LEDs? What does that do to the heat? Can we, mm -hmm. is it possible to have LEDs and heat? How much does mm -hmm. that cost? Mm -hmm. So there's so many conversations taking place right now in sports today. Very mm -hmm. exciting. Very exciting. And back to where we started, that really one of the keys here is how rapidly sports turf is evolving technologically in many ways, much faster than golf is. Certainly the uptake up the technology at the highest levels is much bigger than it is in golf. Listen, Pam, I really appreciate you taking the time out of what I'm sure is a really busy schedule. Thanks for taking the time to join me. It's just been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. I always love having a conversation with you. You always make me think, but I wanted to say thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure, Pam. Pam Sherritt, Turfgrass Specialist at The Ohio State University. This is Frankly Speaking. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Pam Sherritt. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryjack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.